I want to invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to be finishing Hebrews 10 this morning, Lord willing, Lord willing. I'm excited though with what I have, and hopefully we will get there. Hebrews 10 verses 26 through 39 is a larger section we um, plunged into last week as a two-parter. We um, talked about how it's very easy in the Christian life to become forgetful, forget who you are, forget who you are in Christ, forget who God is, just drifting along, drifting away, forgetting about judgment, forgetting about the fact that if we are sinning willfully and disobediently, then we're drifting from God. We're veering off track. Well, there's a positive turn in the passage. If you look at verse 32, it says, but recall the former days when you were enlightened, recalling the former days. The word recall is to remember. So last week we talked about what it's like to forget, to live in sinful disobedience, to wallow in self-pity, to be someone who's blaspheming the cross and just going, you know, Jesus' blood is just like anybody else's blood, and to just deny and ignore recompense that um, judgment is coming. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, the Lord says, verse 30. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God, says verse 31. All these sort of warnings take a pivot in verse 32, where the writer's saying, but you don't have to be that way. You don't have to be a drifter. Remember who you are, but remember, don't forget, remember who you are. This is what I would call just recounting your testimony. Knowing your testimony. Your testimony is one of the most powerful evangelistic tools in your tool belt that you have. You can share your testimony or your story with anyone. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, now I see. This is a natural bridge in conversations to leading people to Christ. It also is something that helps keep your soul on track. It helps keep you warm in your heart to rehearse your testimony. Evangelizing people and remembering your testimony are like bumper rails. It's like putting snow tires on going down AK1 when it gets icy. It keeps you on track for God. Your testimony is such an important part of who you are as a believer in a world that's always luring us away from Christ. Verses 32 through 39 are talking about our testimony. Now, there's really about four testimonies that I regularly hear when people are sharing them. One is, I was, see if you, see if these sound familiar. One is, I was raised to believe in Jesus, so I never knew anything different than believing in Jesus. Who's ever heard of that one? Okay, I know you have. I was going the wrong way and I had a dramatic conversion. I was going this way and then I, now I'm going this way. I repented and I believed. Kind of a Damascus road. Who's ever heard people talk about that one? All right, number three. I was just reading my Bible one day. I pulled it off the shelf. Somebody handed me a Bible. I had stowed it away and then I just pulled it off and started reading and I started to believe. Who's ever heard somebody give that one? Yeah. All right. 
last one. It's where you say, you know, I think I was saved at six or seven. And I I believe in childhood conversion. I believe in childhood salvation. But a lot of people, I, I think I was, and maybe I was, but at 17 or after college, I really got serious about the Lord. So I don't know exactly when I became a Christian, but that's when I got serious. Who's ever heard of that one? Right. That's my version. But anyway, yeah, it's kind of those four. And then you have interlaced with those, a significant influencer, somebody who comes into your life, who leads you to Christ, whether a parent or a friend, a particular sermon that was a turn or burn type sermon that woke you up, a crisis where you, your health went bad and you sought the Lord, a near death experience, a life altering moment, or just coming clear. Here's, here's a final version that it's hard to hear people give this testimony because it's called the deathbed conversion. (laughs) And most often they're right at the end and they believe, and then they go and they be there with the Lord. And it was their whole life. They lived wrong. And because there were believers around them, leading them to Christ, praying with them providentially, they come to faith in Christ. That's another testimony, right? We hear of that one, whether spoken from the person that's believing in the last moment or from people who say, you know what? I think this person believed and that's our comfort. That's our hope. This is the testimony. This is what's in our arsenal that keeps us from drifting towards apostasy. People that leave the faith as we talked about earlier, are really leaving church even. They're leaving the accountability of the faith and they're drifting away. And when people drift all the way away and spurn the Lord and spurn the blood of Christ and reject it outwardly, it becomes obvious that they were never believers in the first place. And that's the warning of Hebrews. We never want to be any part of drifting. We don't want to be driving the car down AK-1, right, without snow tires where we're just kind of sliding around in our faith. And we, yeah, I think I'm a Christian. Well, maybe I'm not a Christian. Oh, I'm off in a ditch and I'm just drowning. You don't want to be that person. That's what Hebrews is just being just blunt about and obvious about once you understand that that's what the author of Hebrews is driving against, then it comes clear. But what do we do positively? We don't want to forget um, who we are. We want to remember who we are in the Lord. So here's how we remember. This is what remembering looks like in the Lord. Remembering what remembering looks like. Remember your conversion. I got to say this, and this is another kind of secondary intro, but I have to say, remembering is a spiritual discipline. This is not something that we should take lightly. Remembering is kind of like praying or meditating, remembering. Remember Jesus said, when we observe the Lord's table, do this in what? Remembrance of me. Every month we practice the spiritual discipline of remembering. It's meditative. You can taste the grape juice when you think about that moment, right? You can taste the, the wafer in your, in your mouth because you're remembering the cross, its significance. That's part of what bumper rails us as we persevere towards the end, as we fight the good fight of faith. This is part of what helps us. When we see someone baptized, we are remembering the gospel. These are great moments in our faith that, that kind of push us along towards the finish line. Second Peter chapter 1, verses um, 
12 and 13. Uh, Peter has talked all about in chapter one about spiritual growth, about brotherly affection, about growing in Christ, about making sure of our election in verse 10, our calling, being diligent to do that. And then in verse 12, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these things, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. I love that phrase. I want to stir you up. This is Peter at the end of his life, bold Peter, foot in his mouth, Peter. Hey, I'm just going to just take the gloves off. I want you to grow and I'm unabashedly going to remind you to keep growing. Keep remembering who you are in the Lord. Examine yourself, Paul said. See if you're in the faith. Test yourself to see if it's truly that Christ is in you. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, um, verse 5, self-examination. This is not a bad thing to examine yourself, to remember, to, to look inside. 1 John 5, 13, um, these things I've written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. It's recalling, it's remembering. It's, the word remember or recall is like reconstructing the movie that you really liked in your mind's eye. It's remembering that first time that you knew that you believed. When your faith became your own. Do you remember that? Do you remember your first Bible study that you went to that mattered, that was meaningful, not something you were made to go to, but you wanted to go to? Who remembers that? Who, who remembers someone who took an interest in you, who said, let's have coffee, let's talk, let's open the Bible together and cared about you, called you, cared about you, prayed for you? Who remembers the first time you were willing to say, I want to tell you that my testimony, I believe in Jesus. And you remember that moment. These are mountain peak moments. I think in my mind's eye, sometimes when I want to get geeked up to preach, the first time I preached it, you know, 18 years old and that moment and a youth, a youth moment and youth ministry where I got to preach to the youth group on a Wednesday night and then go into a Bible class for the first time in college. These are mountain peak moments where I was invested in and it mattered. It was trajectory setting and life changing. This is what the author is saying to do. Remember these things. Remember the former days, he says. Look at the passage, the former days, the earlier days. That means people that are reading this letter in the early church had been saved for a little while. Remember that. This is when, when you weren't you know, jaded in your Christian experience. It's where you weren't looking at people with a jaundiced eye. You had no skepticism. All you knew as a Christian was to love everybody at church. And there was, you know, there was nothing going wrong. It's just, I'm choosing holiness because the sin garbage that I was a part of just dragged me down. You know, it's when you were pumped up in the Lord and the Bible verses were popping off the page. You say, I remember that story, but it didn't mean anything to me before. Now it means everything to me. Remember those days, you know, and when I think of those days in my life, I get depressed a little bit <laughs> because as soon as you become a Christian, the devil becomes a real enemy in your life. Your flesh is really pulling against what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. And you have that battle inside. And so the early days are good to go back to and don't get depressed about that. That was just early in your Christian life. We have battles that happen. Paul talks about people who were with him and who departed from him. He talks about in 2 Corinthians and points being depressed in the faith. I mean, it's, it's a roller coaster till we get to glory. 
But the author here is saying, remember those early days. Remember when you were enlightened, the early days after you came to life. So first of all, we remember our conversion. Secondly, verse 32b, remember your pain. (laughs) This might sound like a complete contradiction. Hey, remember the joy of your salvation. No, my point is remember your pain. Early on in the Christian life, when you were converted, I guarantee it came with a cost and it's painful. It is wonderful. You're illumined. God flips a switch in your heart and you say, Jesus, you're everything. I believe in you. You're all I want. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ has shined. The day has dawned in my heart. The lights come on. It's regeneration. You're born again. But when you're born again, certain things happen in your life that are challenges. And the words here is, remember the former days, verse 2, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. How can this be encouraging? Why would this be something good to remember? Well, let's just put it in the broader context for a second. If you're someone who's drifting, that's someone who has an I don't care attitude. This is the most dangerous place to be in the Christian life where you think you're a believer, but you really are just kind of going through the motions. You don't really care. You're sinning deliberately. You're just, ah, da, 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 que sera, sera, whatever will be with me. I, I don't care that I just sinned. It doesn't matter. I don't even call that sin anymore. On and on and on. Okay, the author is taking defibrillator, defibrillator paddles and he's going clear. Look, remember when you came to life. Remember that you loved Jesus. And then remember when you used to be in the fight. Remember when you used to be in the battle. It was a hard struggle. It was an endurance race. All of Hebrews 11 is going to talk about marathon runners who are running the endurance race. It's the hall of faith of of yesteryear. And then Hebrews 12 picks right back up and says, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, we have to run the endurance race. That's where Hebrews is going. And so he's saying, remember the race. Remember what it was like to be an athlete in the race, to do the hard struggle work. And actually, this is where there's joy. It's joy in pain. The word enduring here, and you endured, is the word hupamone. And I want you to pay attention to that word. It's a very, very powerful word here in this immediate context. It's powerful. We'll pick it up in James 1. It's in Revelation. It is a strong word. Hupa means to be under, and mone means to remain. It's the same word for abide, like the vine and branches. The branch that abides bears fruit. It's remaining. It's like lifting weights. You say, this is a hard struggle. It's something that was unpredictable. I came to faith in Christ. This relationship all of a sudden was jeopardized or this persecution happened or this person came after me or this person said this or this doctrine became confused, right? This is a hard, this I'm suffering for Jesus and I'm bearing up under it. I'm not running away from it. I'm letting the weight of it conform me into the image of Christ. I'm letting the weight of it as I patiently bear under it, make me dependent upon the Lord where he changes me from the inside out like he's developing spiritual muscle as I bear up under. That's the hard struggle. 
The author is saying, get back in there. Get back in the race. Remember that. It's stick to It's steadfastness. The word struggle is, catch this, athelason. Do you hear that word athlete in that? Remember when you were a runner. Remember when you were an athlete. If you've ever been in any kind of uh, cardiovascular work, you know it's kind of one or two ways, right? When you aren't doing anything cardiovascularly, like walking or running or swimming or anything, you see somebody that is, you go, I have no idea how I ever could get there and be doing that. <laughs> like that's the worst thing in the world. I do not want to breathe hard and feel like I'm going to pass out. On the other hand, when you are in shape, you go, I don't know how I can't be like this and enjoy being in shape and being able to breathe again. And so, you know, that's the, that's kind of the fulcrum that the author's working with here saying, look, be an athlete. Remember the hard struggle, push through the unanticipated obstacles, be ready physically and mentally, no matter what the adversity that comes, comes. The mindset is everything. It's being filled with the word of God in your mentality. It's recognizing what Jesus said. If, you know, a servant is not greater than his master, John 15, 20. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. I still remember my best friend, junior high and high school, were still really, really good friends. I used to go to his house, you know, every day after school, he'd come over to my house on the other days and we just sort of lived life growing up in each other's families and he became a believer senior year in high school after I became a believer senior year in high school and he was sitting there with his mother and his mother was contesting his faith and was was pushing him a bit and I remember sitting there watching my young friend and he's a quiet you know soft-spoken guy very strong but just a quiet by nature person and, you know, I'm kind of quiet that way. No, I'm kidding. I mean, we, we kind of were a good balance. But, but we're sitting there and his mom's going after him. And both his mom and dad were kind of atheists and they believed in evolution and things like that. And they're sitting there and, and specifically his mother was coming after him. And my friend looked at her and I, it was amazing. He had been reading Matthew and he read Matthew 10 to her and it was just powerful. He just said, Jesus said, do you not think that I have come to bring, do you think that I do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth? I have not come to bring peace, but a sword for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. That's what he said to her as a 17, 18 year old, just putting it all on the line. Well, what happened? Well, Roll the tape forward. His parents still are unbelievers, but this young man's a full-time pastor. He lives a couple hours away from his home. And in the very yard that I grew up in, he hosts, his parents host youth retreats at their house because they have a large house and that youth events and, and they encourage their son in the Lord as a pastor. They don't believe yet. But because of his testimony, because of his faithfulness, because of his graciousness, and because of his hard stand and clarity in that, they know where everybody is and is not, and they're working together. And they may or may not believe, but we hope that they do. But that's a testimony of faithfulness. That's the hard struggle. This is the stuff that keeps us on track that we have to recall in our minds. 
Verse 33, remember your friends, remember your testimony, remember your pain that you've endured, and also remember your friends. Verse 33, sometimes, and it's recalling what it was when they first believed, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Sometimes public exposure. This is the idea that you are willing to put yourself out there with your friends. And I can't express this enough. You will become like the people you spend the most time with. You are who you hang around. I've been saying it to youth groups forever. You are. Those people impact the way you think, the way you feel, the things you like, the things you will not like. And when you decide to stand with a true Christian friend who's putting himself out there for public exposure. You are putting yourself out there for public exposure. It's all for one, one for all. We're all going to go down together. I'm in it to win it with you as a friend, a Christian friend. There's a camaraderie of fellowship in the Lord. The word partnership here in verse 33, being partners, that's the word koinonia, Koinonia, you're in fellowship with people. You'll stand with them and you'll accept the same treatment that they are enduring. We fight together alongside each other. But what, is, what are we fighting for? We're fighting for truth. We don't fight the world's way. We don't fight to be mean. We don't fight to win. We fight for truth. We fight for Christ's glory. We contend earnestly for the faith. We fight for the souls of men and women. That's why we fight. That's why we're comrades. And we suffer together. We suffer together. We're willing to endure public exposure. I mean, the opposite is true. If you as a believer surround yourself with the wrong company, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, bad company corrupts good morals. Do not be deceived. So I want to take a risk here and dive into the deep end of the pool and illustrate this with scripture. Oftentimes scripture illustrates scripture better than any other illustration that you can come up with on your own. And the book of Acts does it really well. There's a great story of when Saul became Paul, there was a mission that was given to a unique individual in Acts chapter 9 named Ananias. And Ananias had to come to terms with the fact that Saul, who was the most dangerous man alive to him, had become a believer. And Ananias was willing to become friends with Saul, but he had an um-God moment. He was, that's what Tim Challey said. I read an article. It's like where he went, oh, but, 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 but I'm not sure that I can make friends with this guy. Acts 9 Verses 10 and following, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. As he's seen the vision of a man named Ananias to come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And here's Ananias's um God moment, verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings. And to the children of Israel, 
verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Paul, who's or formerly Saul, is going to suffer as he gives his testimony. Verse 17, Ananias departed and entered the house and laying hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. You hear those words, brother Saul. That's the deep fellowship. If you don't have Christian friends, you got to have Christian friends. Christian friendship keeps you on the path. It keeps you from swerving away. It keeps you from drifting off. I've seen it over and over again in my lifetime. Evaluate who your closest friends really are. Where do they go to church? Are they regularly in the word of God? Do you want to have spiritual conversations with them? This is what keeps you on the track. This is what you should be praying for, for your friends that you want to be right with God. Lord, bring them Christian friends. It's what you pray for, for loved ones that are outside of our reach, right? You, Lord, surround them with Christian friends. This is what we want. Do you remember Acts 17 when, when Paul was on the mission field in the second missionary journey? He was three Sabbaths in Thessalonica and he was explaining Christ and he was with Silas, his good friend and missionary compatriot. Verse five, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob and set in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authority shouting, these men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. And Jason Again, who is Jason? Jason is just this hero in this story. That's who Jason is. I don't know if Jason's showing up anywhere else. Maybe I haven't read to find him, but verse seven, and Jason has received them and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar. Jason's aligning himself with Paul and Silas saying, hey, come on into our house. We'll hide you. We'll put you in the floorboards or whatever. And, and the mob is coming. He said, they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So what they do? Jason's protecting them, but ultimately says, look, just take my money. Take my money. Just go away. Here's my money. And he protected them. He aligned himself with these brothers in the Lord. That's koinonia. That's fellowship. Fellowship is not just having a good praise chorus time together. Fellowship is doing that. It's putting your reputation and your life on the line for people. It's being willing to be plundered or taken advantage of, according to the scripture, publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. I mean, this is what Jason underwent. And this is Paul's testimony. Paul on his um, journeys, his missionary journeys, ultimately third missionary journey, he went under house arrest. This is when he wrote Galatians 
Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. This, these are the prison epistles. Now, for Paul to be in under house arrest is different than his imprisonment before he goes to be executed. House arrest meant you actually had some resources. There were people like Epaphroditus and others who, who underwrote Paul, I think, and supported him on the mission field. And for preaching in Rome, he was in, in probation status. He was chained to a guard. That would be like him being in probation. He couldn't go. He couldn't just freely come and go where he wanted to. He's in jail, but it's, if you had some money and you had resources, you could actually rent living quarters to live in where you were under Roman guard and imprisonment, but you could still freely write and you could have visitors come and go. If you didn't have friends though, you would get one meal a day and maybe one change of clothes a week. But if you had friends who could come and go and supply your needs, suddenly Paul's like, you know what? I'm in Rome. I'm in the center of the world and I'm going to have a deep mission sending influence that's going to shake up the world for Christ, even though I'm chained to this Roman guard. And in fact, I've got a captive audience that I'm going to send the gospel through to try to reach the whole Praetorian guard, according to Philippians 1 and Philippians 4. That's exactly what was going on. On. Philippians 1.12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Look at Paul's attitude, right? I just right in the center of God's will, chained to a guard, and there he is. And he says, so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard, reaching people for Christ all over the place, and all the rest of my imprisonment, um, that my imprisonment is for Christ. So they all know it's for Christ. My testimony is strong and the Imperial, Imperial Guard, some of them are believing. Philippians 4.22, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Leadership is verbal. It's through the word. It's partnership in this way. It's, but there was a compassion that his friends had. I want to pick up on that for him while he was in prison. Verse 34 of Hebrews 10 Again, a sympathy, that word compassion is, it's, it's the Greek words, you know, that we get sympathy from. So there was a sympathetic heart and joy that the friends had for and with Paul. And we find this in Colossians, another prison epistle, right at the end of Colossians, Colossians 4. Paul's praying in verse 3, he says, at the same time, pray also for us. He's been steadfast in prayer, but pray for us that God may open to us the door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. He's saying, listen, I'm in jail I've got friends who aren't ashamed of me. I'm chained to a Roman guard. I'm praying for you, Colossians, that across the Mediterranean. I'm sending this letter out. Pray for me that the word keeps going out and that I can just make it clear. That's all I want. I don't care where I am. I just want to make it clear, make it clear. And that's what his heart was. But this all happened because of friendships. If you look at Colossians 4, look at verse 7. Let's just list off some of these friends. He says, Tychicus will tell you about my activities. Tychicus is a faithful courier. He's the one who took the letter of Colossians to Colossae, to Laodicea, that same area across the Mediterranean. A beloved brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant Lord. He said, I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And then Onesimus, verse 9. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. It was Onesimus. 
Onesimus was the slave that fled Philemon. If you read Philemon, it's all about a slave who was underneath Philemon. Philemon's his master. Onesimus leaves as an unbeliever, goes across the Mediterranean Sea, and like a needle in a haystack, finds Paul in Rome somehow. In the providence of God, Onesimus probably was desperate for food and shelter, and somehow he makes a connection, finds Paul in this house arrest situation. Paul takes him in, leads him to Christ. And Onesimus becomes this gifted servant and minister along with Paul. It's an amazing story, but Paul knows he needs to make things right. So he's sending Tychicus back with the letter and he's sending Onesimus back and going, go back, make it right with Philemon. And within the letters, he's saying Colossians and Philemon, he's saying, look in Philemon, if, if, if you've lost money because Onesimus left you, let me pay the damages, put it to my account. Let's just make these things right. But consider him as one of you, as a brother now in the Lord. Talk about true reconciliation. So then you have um, Aristarchus, verse 10. My fellow prisoner greets you. Aristarchus, we're not exactly sure but uh, too much about him, but he's not big, bigoting away from a fellow prisoner. He's saying, look, this is my equal in prison. And then Mark, who was Mark? He was the cousin of Barnabas, it says, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. What happened with John Mark? Remember the first missionary journey? Paul and Barnabas, they go out there and they bring Mark. I don't know if Mark was a cousin or was um, Barnabas's nephew. I'm not exactly sure. But they're out there together. And John Mark gets scared early in the mission and bails. He deserts them. Paul says, listen, when second missionary journey comes around, I don't think Mark can go with us because I don't want this to happen again. And Barnabas says, no, I'm going to split off with John Mark. I believe in him. And that's where Paul went with Silas in the second missionary journey. Well, whatever happened with that, whether Paul got it right or Barnabas got it right, it really doesn't matter because in the end, everything came back full circle where John Mark became someone that he's commending and believing in. He loves John Mark. John Mark was an interesting uh, man because he was, he was raised in a Christian home. According to Acts 12, he, his mother held church in her house. That's where Peter in Acts 12 fled when he was released from prison. An angel opened the door and he knocked on the door. Remember Rhoda, who's the housekeeper, was saying, oh, it's a vision. Is that Peter? That can't be Peter. And it really was Peter. Well, that was John Mark's household. That's how he was raised. And, and then ultimately, John Mark wrote a gospel. He wrote the book of Mark. It's an amazing reconciliation story. Further in Colossians 4, you have um, Jesus, who's also called justice. That means Jews were still being saved. That's what that's there for. And then verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ. This is the pastor of Colossae who had come to visit Paul. The Colossians unselfishly sent their pastor to Paul to minister to him. If you look down at verse 17, he says, I say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received from the Lord. Archippus was the pastor who was the interim pastor who stayed in Colossae while Epaphras went. So he's, he's saying, look, affirm him as well. And then verse 14 up earlier, you have Luke, who's the one Gentile writer of the New Testament. He greets you as a physician. And then Demas And Demas at this point is affirmed later. We're going to find out that he falls away from the faith. He had a good start, but that doesn't always guarantee 
a good finish. So there's a lot here. Why am I bringing all this up? It's Christian friendships. The end of Colossians, how's he ending his letter? Friendship, 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 friendship. This is what matters. This is what matters while I'm in house arrest. You know when it really mattered to Paul even more? Second Timothy chapter four, where he's in a different prison. At this point, he comes back to Rome and he's put in basically a death row scenario where it's a Mamertine prison. I've never been there before. I was talking to my brother who's been there down in the hole that's known to be the Paul's prison. You basically are going down into a hole, a cell that's dug out and it has a sort of a, you know, little box that food would come in and out through. And ultimately Paul, when he was to be executed by beheading, was lifted out through that hole and killed and slaughtered for the faith. But while he's there, he's desperate for his friendships on a soulish level. You know, I fought the good fight. This is for Second Timothy 4, 7. Finished the race. I've kept the faith. He knew he was going to heaven. He was saying to Timothy, come to me soon. Verse 10, Demas in love with this present world has deserted and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. So people have departed from him. Demas left was defecting from the faith. He was drifting. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me in ministry. What a commendation. Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. Tychicus is just a good field soldier. It's good in the field. And then when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Then verse 14, people have deserted him. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself for he is strongly opposed to our message. He's fighting for truth here, but look how gracious he is. He said, no one stood with me, but all deserted me at my first defense. Verse 16, may it not be charged against them. That's the spirit of Christ. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Verse 19, you have Priscilla and Aquila that's mentioned. The household of Anesiphorus, Erastus of Corinth. These are just names. Trophimus, who was ill, he cared for him. Miletus says, do your best to come before winter. Eulabus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit, grace to you. This is Paul, right at the end. What's he talking about? He's talking about people. Is he talking about stuff? No. We, we learned this in preschool and we forget. We can't take it with us to heaven, right? <laughs> you know, we can't pull a U-Haul into heaven, all that um, joking around, but we can't. What matters are two things, the Lord and people. I mean, we need supplies to feed the people, <laughs> right? And keep us warm, but... Uh, really what matters is the camaraderie of fellowship, koinonia, one anothering, caring for each other, knowing each other personally. This is what keeps our souls in warm spiritual exercise. It's not, we're not talking about being saved. We're saved at a point in time, but it is, our testimony is not just our point in time salvation. It's also a testimony of faithfulness, growing in grace, persevering down the path, fighting the good fight of faith and doing it together. This is what we should remember. We remember our, our testimony when we were enlightened, the former days of that, when we were clear, 
We remember the pain and the hard struggle of fighting the good fight of faith as athletes. And we remember our friends. That's how you grow. Well, verse, verses 34 through 37, remember your joy. Remember your joy. Just want to look at this. It says, since you knew yourselves, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You're not concerned about stuff. You're concerned about an abiding passion for Christ. Your possession is heaven. How do you experience heaven on earth? How do you do it? You know, the kingdom is It's not food or drink, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Lord. You know, people are going to try to steal our joy. People are going to try to demoralize us. They're going to try to plunder our stuff, take advantage of us for being Christians. But being a a joy-filled Christian is someone who realizes that Jesus is in our hearts. The word abiding, that's that word minnow. Remember, the hard struggle is hupa minnow. It's staying under the struggle. Well, It's also recognizing that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever in your heart always. Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the kingdom of God on earth in your life. That's the better possession. He's never, ever, ever going to leave you, ever You know, there's more here, but I don't want to um, go too quickly. I just want to say this. Listen, take the chance, take the challenge at lunch. If you're in a setting or if you're soon in a setting with the family, do something like this. We're going to go around the table, giving you permissions to do this, parents. Let's share our testimony around the table. That's not to put somebody on the spot that might not be a Christian. It's just... If you can comfortably do it, if it makes sense to do it, take the, take the challenge. Share your testimony. When did you become a Christian? Which category is you? How did you come to Christ? This is what keeps us strong in the Lord. If you want to take the second challenge, don't, leave, don't just share the testimony in your comfortable community Commit to share your testimony with somebody else out there in the community that you think is not a believer. Hey, can I share this with you? Can I tell you my story? Is that scary? It is scary. But you know what? I guarantee after you do it, you will just be flooded with joy because you go, I know I'm a Christian. I have the assurance of my salvation and I'm growing in grace.